Okay, everybody, uh, welcome to our um, Friday lecture series. So a special welcome to the applicants that we have on that are applying for the Critical Care Medicine Fellowship Program. Um, so I'm really happy to have today um, Dr. McDaddy here. So he is actually a neurocritical care fellow at um, the Mass General Brigham and Women's Program. Um, before that, he was a neurology resident at the Cleveland Clinic. Um, I had been reading through some of the critical care journals and had stumbled across some of his work that I thought was incredibly interesting. Um, and I was happy to have him here today. So he's going to be sharing a lecture called Ancillary Studies in Brain Death Determination, Looking Back and Moving Forward. So without further ado, sir, go ahead and take it away. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Levine. I'm uh, very excited to be here, and I really want to thank you for inviting me to this talk. Um, you know, I want to get past this cliche title, and uh, and uh, I, I want to, you know, just emphasize that when you know Dr. Levine invited me to do this talk, it was mostly based on a, a paper that uh, we recently published in Critical Care Medicine on the ancillary study use in uh, for brain death determination. Uh, but I wanted to take this chance to kind of broaden the talk a little bit more about ancillary studies in general, talk about what we have in terms of tools and uh, what we kind of worked on and what we hope to achieve. Um, you know, by any means, by no means, I'm an expert in uh, brain death topic. I it is definitely a research interest, so I'm pretty sure that some of the some of you are have definitely done more brain death, death determinations than I have. Uh, so please feel free to interrupt or ask questions uh, as we go through the slides. So I have no disclosures. Um, so our learning objectives for this presentation is uh, one, I uh, wanted to kind of go over the different types of ancillary studies that are available um, and uh, go through their indications and what constitutes an ideal ancillary test and whether there really is or is not an ideal ancillary test. Um, and we're going to go through some of the work that we did to analyze the current practices and factors associated with ancillary study use. And then we're going to touch base a little bit on the and some of the limitations on um, of brain death uh, research and brain death literature that is currently available, and how we can uh, collaborate to make this uh, brain death, you know, this field uh, progress further. So, as many of you guys know, the uh, you know brain death, or a more uh, recent and probably better term is death by neurological criteria is defined as the irreversible cessation of all functions of the brain, including the brainstem. And this definition is um, has been implemented in the Uniform Determination of Death Act and, um, and uh, the American Academy of Neurology guidelines over the years. And there's supposed, supposedly a, a new guideline that should uh, come out pretty soon. Um, based on this, on this definition, it, it, this definition is based on uh, functions of the brain. So it's really not based on you know, blood flow or EEG or any any of those things, which makes which means that this uh, definition implies that the determination of brain death um, is really a clinical diagnosis, if able. And ancillary studies are only required when clinical criteria cannot be satisfied. And really cannot stress that enough because that's going to be one of the one of the things we're going to talk about when we talk about the research that we have done. Um, so uh, many of you guys know that. The determination of brain death um, has a significant variability around the world, uh, uh, especially when it comes to the indications and the type and the number of uh, uh, examinations to be done and what ancillary studies to be used. So when are ancillary studies needed? And um, this this is a question that always uh, comes up, um, you know, in the neuro-ICU, but also, and a lot of times in the MICU and the CQ and the cardiac ICU, depending where the patient ends up, is that when do we really need an ancillary study? And the, and the answer is, if you are able to competently document a clinical determination of brain death that is unconfounded um, and that really meets all the prerequisites that are established in the American Academy of Neurology guidelines, and I'm pretty sure every institution has its own policy, if you're able to do all those things and you have, you're certain about your determination, you really do not need an ancillary test. Um, so the clinical determination of brain death is uh, it constitutes of three major uh, aspects. So one, you have to have a known and irreversible neurological injury that explains uh, and puts the patient uh, in a situation where they could be brain dead. And, um, and that 
that is, I cannot really stress that enough because there's a lot of patients who comes in, for example, after cardiac arrest and their head CT looks fine, but their exam is poor. Um, in those patients, you have to be really careful to make sure that you do have imaging characteristics that are really suggestive of a, uh, a severe neurological injury that shows intracranial hypertension or herniation or some sort of uh, element of imaging characteristics that uh, actually explain the patient's exam that is consistent with brain death. So one, you have to have this irreversible neurological injury. Two, you have to have um, uh, you have to have coma as an element of your exam. And three, um, you have to have absence of brainstem reflexes. And all of these have to be in the setting of absence of confounders. So if you're unable to um, complete th these aspects, including the apnea test that are that come usually comes after. Uh, uh, the brainstem reflexes, you can go ahead and get an ancillary test. Sometimes it is really hard to avoid confounding conditions, um, such as, you know, some uncertainty about res residual uh, sedatives or some metabolic abnormalities or effective hypothermia on uh, delayed drug level or uh, any anything else that you can think of that could confound the exam. Uh, third, if sometimes these patients have spinal mediated motor reflexes, um, although these are well characterized in the literature, sometimes they're not all the same. And sometimes they do put the clinician uh, in doubt whether this is really a, uh, uh, an extension or is it really kind of a stereotypical finger flexion that is commonly just a spinal mediated reflex that is um, still consistent with brain death. And lastly, and this is more of a political, social, ethical issue, is that sometimes there are mandates by national or regulatory bodies um, that do necessitate uh, the, uh, the, the use of ancillary tests. And that may not be the case in the United States, but in some countries, ancillary studies are actually uh, needed to complete the determination of brain death. Um, sometimes the families are very resistant to the diagnosis of brain death. And although brain death is considered legal, legal death, uh, sometimes it's really hard to convince the family of that concept and getting that ancillary test uh, could put the family at ease and um, uh, essentially spare you some of, uh, uh, of the ethical aspects of going ahead and exhibiting someone against their family wishes because they're dead, for example. So it's always better to reach an agreement with the family, although it's uh, it's it's sometimes hard. Um, so to talk a little bit about the variable rate in brain death determination policies uh, in in regards to the ancillary testing, this was a paper that was published in JAMA Neurology in 2016 with uh, by Dr. Greer at uh, BMC, who is a, uh, a an authority on brain death uh, in in the world and especially in the U.S. And what they did is they uh, obtained hospital policy from uh, around 500 hospitals. And these policies for brain death were evaluated for several questions, including the details of ancillary testing. That's what we're going to focus on. Um, and if you look uh, at the top um, uh, graph, you can see that around 50% of uh, policies included inability to complete examination as an indication to perform ancillary testing, followed by an inconclusive apnea test result followed by toxic drug levels, chronic carbon dioxide retention, and then normal results of neuroimaging. And they also varied in the um, in what kind of ancillary tests to be performed. The majority of them uh, included EEG, followed by radionuclide studies, followed by uh, cerebral angiograms, and then TCDs. Uh, and these are kind of the what, what is considered approved or validated for uh, brain death determination. There's also evoked potential CTA and MRA, which are which need further uh, validation and proof. Um, but it is interesting that the majority of the policies, at least in 2016, still included EEG as the most common uh, test to be recommended to do um, uh, brain death determination or to, to confirm brain death. Uh, especially now there are multiple cons concerns and, and recent guidance that actually discourages clinicians from relying on EEG for, on EEG for the determination of brain death. And we're going to talk about that um, at the end. So what is an ideal ancillary test? So uh, these, uh, this is the best that I could find actually what defines an ideal ancillary test. And it's by Young and colleagues uh, that was published in 2006. And Although we do know what an ideal ancillary test, just, a lot, just like a lot of things in medicine, we don't really have an ideal ancillary test. So the ideal ancillary test should have no false positive. And I think 
that um, this is probably the most important part, which what, this means that if someone, if you do some kind of a test to confirm brain death, that patient should never regain brain function. And there should be no reports that you do this kind of a test and the patient actually returned brain function or you know started to breathe on their own. The test should be sufficient on its own, which means ideally you shouldn't really need another test to supplement that test. Um, the, the test should not be susceptible to confounders. It should be standardized in technology, technique, and result interpretation. So if I give the same test to several radiologists or uh, epileptologists, they should all have the same interpretation. And ideally, the test should be available, safe, and readily applied. As, and as you guys guessed, we really don't have an ideal ancillary test for the determination of brain death. So the types of tests or tools that we can use um, to assist in the clinical determination of brain death. And I wanted to stress that again, um, the ancillary tests should never replace the clinical determination. And um, the, uh, although we do have a lot of tests that are available, none of them are perfect and none of them replace the clinical exam. So the two major tests that um, most people do, there are multiple other you know, categories that are under study, but these are kind of the tests that are currently either approved or most commonly used. Um, First one is tests of serial blood, uh, blood flow, including serial angiogram, uh, radionuclide imaging, TCD, and tests of electrocerebral activity, uh, including EEG and the rest of the evoked potentials. Note that CTA, MRA, CT perfusion, MRA, per, MR perfusion, again, are not um, truly validated, although they've been, uh, some of them have been studied more extensively than others. So to go over, over these uh, in a little bit more details, uh, the idea of cerebral blood flow testing, if, uh, if you remember when we talked about brain, brain death uh, definition, it's, a, it's the functions of the brain that have to be lost. And, and although blood flow um, results in function, it's, when you test for blood flow, it's kind of a surrogate marker for function. And the idea is that in, in, the, in the majority of cases of brain death, the cause and the pathophysiology, regardless of what the underlying injury is, the majority of these causes lead to severe intracranial hypertension. And once the ICP is above a certain limit, it will stop blood flow from going to the, uh, to the uh, arterioles or to the capillaries and will stop you know, tissue perfusion. Um, obviously, this happens over stages. Usually, ICP is initially close to the diastolic pressure, then close to the diastolic pressure, and then it's above the map, and that's when you kind of lose tissue perfusion. And this idea is called intracranial tamponade, and it's important when you consider the limitations of these studies. Um, and these tests are based on the premise that if, the, if brain blood flow is arrested and does not resume, the brain remains in an irreversible state of non-function. And we see that frequently in survivors of cardiac arrest um, who whose no-flow time or low-flow time is so long that even if you achieve ROSC in 30 or 5 minutes, 45 minutes, um, these patients, unfortunately, in a lot of situations, they end up uh, brain dead despite restoration of blood flow a little bit later. Um, that being said, if there is residual, residual flow, it really does not necessarily mean presence of function. So you could diagnose brain death in the presence of minimal flow. Um, in certain situations. And what this means sometimes that if you do a test and it shows uh, um, uh, still presence of flow, you, it doesn't mean that the clinical exam is wrong. It just means that you may need another test or you may need to repeat the test at another time. And the good thing about these tests is that they're least affected by potential confounders and uh, such as sedatives, electrolyte abnormalities, metabolic dysfunction, or, uh, or even hypothermia. Uh, but because of this idea of intracranial tamponade, you have to really be careful about any breach of the cranial vault. So patients who have an EVD or have a crany, uh, this is a major limitation because it kind of negates this intracranial tamponade physiology that actually results in cessation of blood flow in the first place. Um, the, uh, Dave Greer and, and his colleagues, as part of the, uh, uh, the recent uh, publication in JAMA Neurology 2020, uh, they formed a, a worldwide collaboration um, uh, for brain death, and they published um, a lot of guidance on brain death determination, but they also had an extensive list of supplementary material that could be used to really guide your 
day-to-day -day practice and break that determination. So I really advise anyone, uh, especially the followers, anyone who's really interested in would need some guidance to kind of check out this uh, this paper. But this table is from that publication, and we can see that the sensitivities and specificities of serial blood flow tests um, are, they vary. Um, but these numbers should be really uh, taken cautiously because most of the literature that support these numbers actually they come from papers that uh, compare these tests with other ancillary tests or with the clinical determination, which means that in the majority of studies, we don't really have a control group of non-brain dead patients who are severely comatose or have intracranial hypertension because of an irreversible neurological injury. The DSA or conventional angiogram is considered the gold standard. Um, and again, 100%, 100%, they, these numbers vary. There are some studies that do report uh, some false um, uh, negatives. Uh, but in all of these studies, the persistent of flow really does not contradict the clinical examination. It may just mean that you have to do the test at another time or do a different test. We also have CTMRA that we're not going to go through in details here. We're going to talk a, a little bit about them um, with, with, a, with some pictures. So this is a DSA or a, or a, a four-vessel serial angiogram. On the left, you can see an, a common carotid injection and the, le and the left common carotid. Uh, and you can see a little bit, a, a little bit filling of the ICA, but then you lose, um, you lose blood flow to branches of the uh, intracranial segment. Uh, although you do see branches of the extracranial uh, or the external carotid arteries, this is consistent with brain death. On the right, you can see a right vertebral artery injection that also see, shows cessation of flow and, and absence of uh, intracranial blood flow. Although DSA or serial angio is considered the gold standard, uh, we know that it's uh, very costly. It requires a certain level of expertise. It's invasive. It's associated with complications, and the patient really needs to be transferred. So almost in any in none of the institutions that I've uh, worked at was this a common test that we we ordered. And I know that's uh, probably the same in, in many academic institutions around the world because there have been efforts to develop and validate other tests that we're going to talk about. Now, TCDs um, are, have been around for a long time, and uh, they have been used to confirm uh, the cerebral circulatory arrest uh, for a long time. Um, and, and this is based on the premise that a normal TCD has this systolic uh, waveform and a diastolic waveform. And once the ICP is elevated uh, above the diastolic blood pressure, you start losing this diastolic flow until you reach this kind of systolic peak appearance. So minimal or almost no diastolic flow. And then once the ICP is even higher than that, you start seeing reversal of flow, especially in the diastolic phase. And we call this the biphasic flow or the, the oscillating flow, or you can see it mentioned as a reverberating flow. And then once the ICP is even higher, you start losing any diastolic flow and it starts affecting the systolic um, waveform. And you see these small systolic peaks. And then once the ICP is really higher than the systolic blood pressure, you will lose um, signal on TCD. So these three elements, so biphasic flow, systolic spikes, and absence of signal are all consistent with cerebral circulatory arrest, um, which is consistent with brain death. Now, if you, the, I would be careful about if you do a TCD and you do not see a signal, um, there is around 10% of the population who does not have adequate uh, temporal windows to evaluate the MCAs, which means that if you do a TCD the first time and this TCD um, does not show any flow whatsoever, you really cannot use TCD to confirm brain death because you, would, you wouldn't know whether it was the adequacy of the temporal window or whether it was really absence of flow. Now, however, if you do TCD the first time, you see a little bit of a signal, and then the second time it's absent, that could still be consistent um, with uh, uh, cerebral circulatory arrest. The next modality is going to be the radionuclide imaging. And, um, uh, you know, as you guys know, the radionuclide, radionuclide idea is that you inject these technetium labeled um, substances and uh, you try to detect it somewhere in the body. And uh, there are two ways to do this in the brain there is radionuclide angiography, which, in which you inject lipophilic technetium based substances that really do not leave the blood vessel. So they stay in the blood vessel. So that's why it's called radionuclide angiography. Um, the problem with that, um, 
is that it has a limited assessment of the posterior fossa because it just, uh, just because you really can't see it on these scans. Now, the other um, imaging is called duridinuclide scintigraphy, which, in which you inject a lipophobic substance, uh, technetium substance, and um, the lipophobic ends up going through the blood-brain barrier into the brain tissue and metabolized by the brain. So once it's metabolized by the brain, you go and do your um, uh, SPECT scan or, or planar imaging, and you can see absence of um, radionuclide uptake. So this absence of radionuclide uptake, you'll, you'll see it as what is called the uh, empty light bulb sign, or uh, it's just basically a fancy name for seeing no, no uptake in the brain. But sometimes you see this interesting sign that is called the hot nose sign, um, in which there is uptake uh, around the nose, and that's uh, because of, you know, this gets its supply from the external carotid artery, so it's completely extracranial in addition to the venous plexuses. Um, the radioneck scintigraphy is the most common uh, method that is utilized um, just because it has a better assessment of the posterior fossa. And there is, are actually two ways to do that. Uh, one of them is to do a planar imaging, like a chest X-ray. And there's the other one is to do a SPECT, uh, which is a tomographic image. SPECT has a better sensitivity and a specificity for the, for the determination of brain depth. Now, because this um, uh, radionuclide scintigraphy, because it, is, it measures or detects metabolic uptake, if you do a test and uh, you don't like the results or you think that there is minimal flow and you'd like to repeat it in, a, in some time, the recommendation is to wait at least 24 to 48 hours because as we said, it, this, these, metab these uh, metabolites are taken into the brain and that's what you see. So you wanna give, an, you know, wanna give time for that to kind of wash out. And it's important to know that SPECT currently is replacing angiogram as a you know, quote unquote gold standard, although that's still kind of under research, but uh, uh, it, is, it is one of the best you know, blood flow studies that you can get. Now, uh, talking about CTAs, um, so we all know CTAs, we use it for different reasons, and that's, that's, uh, that's why people have tried to use it uh, for brain death determination because it's readily accessible, it's uh, not that expensive, and um, uh, it's pretty easy and quick to get. Um, so when you get a CTA similar to angiogram, um, you see absence of intracranial uh, opacification of the blood vessels, uh, and despite uh, presence of extracranial opacification. Now, I would say the one of the major issues with uh, CTAs is a, a concept called stasis filling, um, which comes up frequently if you ever do CTAs for brain death determination. And stasis filling, uh, what that is, is that there is weak and delayed um, permeation of blood flow to the proximal vessels. And the idea is that most of these scans are a two-phase or multi-phase scan. So when you do, so the initial scan, you may not see anything. And then the next phase scan, you may see slow permeation of blood flow to the proximal vessels. That, that really does not um, contradict the determination of brain death. And the idea is that the, this intracranial tamponade, it has a larger effect on the distal vessels and the uh, microcirculation, the arterioles and, and the capillaries, uh, which is still consistent with cerebral circulatory arrest. Uh, so even if you see a little bit of proximal flow, that could still be uh, suggest still consistent with brain death. There are different ways to kind of solve this issue that um, researchers have suggested or or are considered. Uh, one of them is to shorten the the second phase of the scan, which um, uh, has been studied and 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 shown to actually affect. Uh, uh, this uh, kind of late opacification. The other thing that some researchers have done is to actually, uh, we know that, for example, the proximal MCAs or ICAs sometimes are seen because of stasis filling. So why even look at it for brain death determination? So there are all these scores now to what vessels to evaluate on a CTA to determine brain death. Um, despite you know its promising nature, uh, CTA still needs further validation uh, before it's routinely used in uh, brain death uh, declarations. So uh, the next category of tests is, are, are these tests of electrocerebral activity. And uh, you know we know that these are the first modalities to ever be been used actually to evaluate brain death. And this was one of the uh, tests that were first uh, 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 used and actually implemented in some of the guidelines. 
And, you know, EEG or other evoked potential studies, they evaluate generation and conduction of electrical potentials within the brain parenchyma, which indicate active metabolism, which again, um, indicate uh, function. Uh, the problem with these tests is that it, it has the, an inherent inability to evaluate the entire brain. For example, if you do AEG, you mostly evaluate uh, the cortical structures, maybe some of the cortical structures in the thalamus, but uh, you really cannot evaluate the brain stem. Um, if you do evoked potentials, you basically evaluate the brain stem and parts of the spinal cord, but you really can't evaluate um, the cortex uh, except with, a, with an SCCP. Um, but so each of them alone really cannot be used for, for determination of brain death. And these can be easily affected by temperature, metabolic abnormalities, by drugs. And in a setting like the ICU, they can easily be affected um, by artifacts. Uh, again, this is kind of a similar table to the blood flow tests. Um, and uh, you can see the sensitivity and specificity really varies for EEG. Um, and I, you know, I, I would say, you know, from my limited experience, I think the um, my main issue with EEG has been the uh, specificity rather than the sensitivity. Uh, just because, you know, a lot of these patients, you may not see uh, EEG activity, but this patient is post-cardiac arrest day two or three, you're worried about residual sedatives, and uh, you really cannot assess the brain stem. Um, we're not going to talk about the rest of the evoked potentials because they're less validated, and there's really not a lot of literature on them. This is an example of EEG that is consistent uh, with uh, brain death. The EEG has to have a certain setup. So if you know, order an EEG for brain death determination, it'll have to be done um, uh, specifically for that because the EEG sensitivity has to be at least for two microvolts or higher, and uh, it has to be done for 30 minutes. And uh, uh, so the epileptologists are used to this kind of test. It just has to be ordered in a specific way. All right, so moving on to... Um, you know, some of the work that we recently did. And, and this is kind of a, 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 you know, a project that I really started in my last year of residency. Uh, I didn't get it to finish at the end of my residency and I ended up finishing through my first year of fellowship. Um, and um, uh, this was in collaboration with uh, several of my mentors at uh, Brigham, BMC, including uh, Dr. Greer and, uh, and others. And uh, what we really wanted to know is, to look at the local policy, at the, so this, this study was done at the Cleveland Clinic, uh, including a registry over, over 10 years. Uh, we wanted to look at what the practices are in terms of ancillary study use and how, uh, what the results of ancillary studies were, how they relate to the results of the apnea test and each other. So, um, you know, and this was based on the premise that although brain death uh, determination is, is really a clinical process. There are several studies that suggest that clinicians continue to order ancillary studies in most cases unnecessarily. Um, for example, this, uh, there's a recent retrospective review of uh, 187 patients that showed that ancillary tests were used in 83% of all patients and 74% already had a positive apnea test. Uh, I believe this study was in Turkey and this was not really required per institutional policy. In Spain, a larger study of 42 Spanish ICUs uh, analyzing close to 1,800 brain dead patients, ancillary studies were used in 95% of the patients, although the guidelines in Spain really do not necessitate um, uh, the, uh, you know, obtaining ancillary study for every brain death determination. And a recent review of uh, brain death protocols around the world indicated that ancillary study was included as a requirement for all determinations of brain death in 28% of the protocols. Now, you may ask, what is the problem with over-reliance on ancillary studies? So we hypothesize that the, you know, this ancillary study over-reliance could lead to conflicts with the clinical exam, could lead to conflicts with other ancillary studies, and could potentially actually delay uh, the brain death um, determination. So these were our objectives. One, we wanted to see what factors are associated with ancillary study use. Two, we wanted to look at the outcome of ancillary studies that are relative to each other and to the apnea test. Three, we wanted to see if the numbers of ancillary studies actually change over time. And we wanted to see whether ancillary studies cause delays in brain death diagnosis. So this was a retrospective uh, Singer uh, Center um, or it's probably more appropriate to say single health system because 
It was mostly Cleveland Clinic main campus, but we also included the satellite hospitals uh, in the area that are under Cleveland Clinic uh, umbrella. And we included um, you know, patients that were 28 years or older who were declared brain dead between January 2010 and 2020. And there had to be a clear um, uh, cl documentation of the clinical determination of brain death. We had to be able to see ABG results and ancillary studies and everything. Uh, we used ICD codes to find our patients, and um, we looked at the institutional policy at Cleveland Clinic, and it really follows um, AN's guidelines uh, with few differences. Um, it, they do they do require two separate exams um, in Cleveland. And, however, they only require one apnea test. Interestingly, these two exams could uh, be done uh, either, they have to be done either by two separate physicians, could be one minute apart, uh, or by the same physicians with some time apart. And this sometimes is really not defined. Uh, but one apnea test um, has, you know, is okay. And um, the ancillary studies that are uh, in the policy include uh, serial angiogram, include CTA, SPECT, and, uh, and EEG, in addition to TCD. So even if, C although CTA really wasn't va validated, it was still included um, in, uh, in the guideline. So this is how we defined uh, apnea test and ancillary tests. So a positive apnea test was, uh, as you guys know, it's persistent absence of respiratory drive despite an increase of uh, PaCO2 to greater than 60 millimeter Hg or 20 above baseline in patients with known hypercarbia uh, in the absence of confounders. Um, an apnea test was considered inconclusive if there was a significant um, concern from, for confounders from the research team uh, resulted in inadequate CO2 rise or was prematurely terminated because the patient developed hypoxia, arrhythmia, or hypertension. And a negative apnea test is when a patient um, returns to spontaneous breathing during the apnea test. And obviously, all of these apnea tests occurred after a clinical determination of brain death, including um, a prerequisite of a known irreversible neurological injury that we recorded uh, the presence of coma and absence of brainstem reflexes. Now, for the ancillary studies, they were kind of straightforward. A positive ancillary study is, a, is one that is supportive of brain death diagnosis, as we talked about. The, a negative ancillary study is one that is not supportive for brain death diagnosis. An inconclusive ancillary study is um, when a test when a test is really uh, the interpretation of a test is really not possible uh, because of a technical issue. For example, if an EEG uh, shows a lot of artifacts and, and you really can't tell, or if um, we do a TCD and uh, there's a concern about the adequacy of the, um, the, uh, the, the temporal windows to evaluate uh, the intracranial vessels. Um, it was considered false negative if it was not supportive of brain death despite a full clinical confirmation of brain death, uh, or if another ancillary study was done and it was supportive of brain death. Um, so this was our false negative. We did not have, uh, we did not evaluate for false positives or specificity uh, because we didn't really have a control group of non-brain dead patients who underwent the same tests. Uh, so this was our table one. We had 140 patients uh, that were diagnosed with uh, uh, brain dead in, in that uh, period of 10 years. Uh, 84 of them underwent ancillary studies. Um, and uh, 56 of them did not undergo ancillary studies. You can see the majority ended up undergoing ancillary studies. Um, the majority were uh, males. Uh, the most common etiology of brain death was hypoxic ischemic injury uh, following cardiac arrest, followed by non-traumatic ICH, acute ischemic stroke, TBI, and other causes of edema, cerebral edema. And this, this is kind of a limitation in our study because the... Um, the etiology of brain death in centers around the world really depends on the population of patients that the center uh, serves. Um, so as you can see, hypoxemic brain injury after cardiac arrest was the most common. In some centers, it's actually TBI in level one trauma centers. Um, and Cleveland Clinic, at least main campus, is really not a level one trauma center, but they do get a lot of heart disease and cardiac arrest. So it probably explains why hypoxic ischemic brain injury was the most common. And... Um, the mean, the mean duration between the brain injury and brain death diagnosis was 3.7 days. Um, 
and most patients had a, uh, a normal temperature or, or normal thermic. Most patients were on vasopressors. And the most interesting thing is that 70% of these of the old patients actually underwent apnea test. And this apnea test was actually positive in the majority of patients. It was inconclusive uh, due to some of the um, definitions that we talked about in 10% of the cases. And uh, brain death was confirmed by neurologists in the majority of cases, although there's really nothing in the uh, institutional policy that says that a neurology consultation is necessary for every brain death diagnosis. This figure shows the distribution of etiology of brain death by age. As you can see, um, this uh, uh, you know, traumatic ICH was much more common in younger uh, patients. Um, ICH and acute excretion stroke had a uh, you know, more representation in older patients. And this figure shows the distribution of ancillary studies by the etiology of brain death. And as you can see, patients with hypoxic ischemic brain injury underwent the most number of ancillary studies. Obviously, this is a little bit biased because that was kind of, you know, most of our population were patients with cardiac arrest. Um, but this is kind of the distribution across all, uh, all types of injury. Now, this table is a little bit busy, but uh, uh, it kind of, uh, um, uh, sorry, the next table is busy. This table is not that busy. <laughs> Uh, so, sorry, this is the first, the first thing we wanted to evaluate. We wanted to evaluate the factors that are associated with ancillary study use. And uh, we had a, a preset um, uh, collection of variables that we thought could affect whether a patient ancillary, you know, uh, ends up getting an ancillary study or not. Uh, we used sex and age uh, as, as common confounders. We uh, used etiology of brain death, year of brain death diagnosis, whether brain death diagnosis was declared by a neurologist and uh, whether the patient was uh, on vasopressors. And in the univariate model, uh, sex, um, etiology of brain death being hypoxic ischemic injury, ICH and TBI um, were associated with ancillary study use. But in the multivariable uh, logistic regression model, uh, only sex, hypoxic ischemic brain injury and who declares brain death were associated with ancillary study use. Um, so, um, and, you know, females and patients with hypoxic ischemic brain injury were more likely to get ancillary studies and uh, brain death being diagnosed by a neurologist, actually, those patients were less likely to un undergo uh, ancillary studies, which is interesting. Uh, this is a table that's a little bit busy, but uh, we can uh, go through it really quick. So uh, the second thing that we wanted to do is to evaluate what the outcome or result of these ancillary studies were in comparison to each other and in comparison to uh, the apnea test. And um, as you can see, the apnea test was performed in uh, half of those patients that, were, um, that underwent ancillary studies. These were positive. The, most of the apnea tests uh, uh, were positive. And uh, interestingly, um, the, if you look at the results of ancillary studies, although the majority of them were positive, 93%, 3% were inconclusive, and 4% showed a false negative for brain death determination, um, either because it conflicted with the apnea test or because it conflicted with other ancillary studies. And the ones that were inconclusive these three, they were all TCDs, and all of these were because of inadequate uh, transtemporal windows, um, and all of these ended up uh, going undergoing other ancillary tests to confirm brain death, which were uh, positive for brain death. And if you look at the false negatives, 4% uh, of the patients had a false negative, two of them were TCDs, um, one was a SPECT and one was a CTA, uh, the TCDs, uh, the two, these two TCDs, one conflicted with an apnea test. Um, so a patient had a positive apnea test and a clinical determination of brain death, underwent a TCD that showed some residual diastolic flow in, uh, in the MCA. So um, the patient ended up being diagnosed with brain death based on clinical criteria alone, as they should have been. Um, the other one with the TCD uh, that was falsely negative. It also um, showed some residual flow, and this patient in, ended up undergoing a SPECT scan that showed um, uh, that was consistent with brain death. Uh, 
One patient with a SPECT scan uh, also had a, a false negative, uh, which means the patient was um, clinically brain dead, uh, including with the apnea test, but the SPECT scan showed residual uh, intracranial uptake. The patient actually ended up, again, being diagnosed with brain death clinically, despite these results. So it kind of makes you question why was the ancillary study uh, done in the first place. And similarly, CTA, one patient had a positive apnea test, but had a residual flow in the CTA and ended up being diagnosed with, with uh, brain death based on um, clinical determination. Uh, there is a question in the chat, and I'm, uh, is it a surprise that hypoxic ischemic brain injury undergoes ancillary studies since most of these are out-of-hospital drug overdose or post-cardiac arrest followed by TTM with delayed metabolism of sedation? Absolutely not. And we're going to discuss that a little bit uh, after, and, and I totally agree. That's that's why we think these patients ended up undergoing more ancillary studies, um, just because uh, there's more uncertainty about around uh, hypoxic ischemic brain injury, given the use of hypothermia, given the presence of sedation. So I think clinicians ended up be, end up usually being a little bit less certain about the any residual effect of temperature control or, or sedatives. So uh, the third thing we wanted to evaluate is, uh, is whether ancillary study uh, use over time changed in, our, in uh, the Cleveland Clinic. And uh, you can see that the number of all studies performed um, actually did not really change over time in linear regression, uh, but the number of EEGs, which is shown here on the right side, uh, did decrease over time. And uh, the last thing is uh, why we wanted to see whether the use of ancillary studies actually affected the time to bring death diagnosis. And uh, the, um, you know, as the table on the left shows, uh, this is also um, uh, uh, linear, linear regression um, so you can see odds ratio per one day increase. Uh, the use of any study showed a, a little bit of trend, which is 3.08. Um, I, I hate to say that it's a trend toward statistical significance, but could definitely could be a trend towards the other side. Um, but uh, yeah, none of the other uh, uh, you know, uh, individual ancillary studies actually showed any correlation with the time to bring that diagnosis. All right. So some of our major conclusions, and we're going to talk about each of them in a little bit more detail. Hypoxic ischemic brain injury and who performs brain death affects uh, ancillary study use. Um, you know, gender also affected ancillary study use, but we couldn't really explain why. It was, it was we couldn't really find an explanation. Uh, so, if you guys have any ideas, we would appreciate it. Um, these are the sensitivities that we came uh, up with based on the false negative ratios that we saw, TCD 95%, SPECS 96%, CTA 83%, EEG was 100%, and this is kind of similar to the available literature. There was no significant change over time in the number of all ancillary studies performed, but there was a significant decrease of the number of EEGs, and the performance of ancillary testing did not really affect the time to uh, brain death declaration. And I think we think that the last point, at least, uh, why it didn't really affect the time to brain death declaration, because sometimes uh, these patients who undergo ancillary testing, there are the patients that are that the clinicians are more uncertain about, and this uncertainty itself can actually delay the diagnosis. So it may be because those patients, there is more uncertainty around them. Um, they underwent ancillary studies that could have actually it could actually even make the diagnosis even sooner. So to talk a little bit about each of those points really quick, um, so we did have a high rate of ancillary study performance. So this is probably the major takeout of this study. There was a large number of ancillary tests that were performed despite a clinical determination of brain death, including a positive apnea test. And we think that this is likely due to situational uncertainties. Um, uh, either due to patients' characteristics, but who performs the brain death testing. But we don't think that this is really a, uh, a, a center-specific uh, uh, practice. As I showed at the beginning of like the background for the study, there are multiple studies in the literature now that shows that a lot of uh, clinicians end up getting ancillary tests unnecessarily. Now, this actually ends up being especially true in patients on mechanical circulatory support devices, such as uh, ECMO, Alvans, and others. And uh, this is a, a systematic review that we worked on um, that included 12 to 14 patients, uh, uh, 12 or four, uh, sorry, 22 or, 20, uh, or 24 um, 
studies that uh, evaluated uh, brain death determination on ECMO. And um, it was interesting to see that in 50% of the patients, the apnea test was not even uh, attempted or uh, it wasn't reported. And even in those who actually underwent a confirmatory test, uh, ancillary tests were still uh, performed in the majority of cases. And the most uh, common ancillary test that was performed was uh, EEG followed by CTA and then the rest of the studies, which again, was interesting. Um, you know, although this is not the major topic of this presentation, but um, you know, as you guys know, uh, determination of brain death on ECMO is not an easy task. And uh, in, in this paper, we do also summarize what clinicians have used to, um, to achieve hypercarbia uh, uh, or to do the apnea test. Most commonly, it was through reducing the ECMO sweep flow, um, but there were other uh, uh, ways that, to do it as well. Uh, so second, hypoxic ischemic brain injury patients were more likely to undergo ancillary studies. And um, exactly like uh, the person who asked the question, thank you very much. It, it was because likely because these patients undergo therapeutic hypothermia, uh, residual sedative drugs, and delayed normal recovery. Uh, there is, you know, it, it is important to know that there's a recent guidance uh, from uh, the World uh, Brain Death Collaborators to wait at least 24 hours after rewarming from therapeutic hypothermia prior to pursuing brain death determination in these patients. And to ensure that even before trying to attempt brain death determination in these patients, to make sure that there is actually a known and irreversible neurological injury that you can see on, uh, on brain imaging. So three, which was an interesting finding, is that non-neurologists were more likely to uh, perform ancillary studies. And clearly, this is likely to varying expertise and comfort with the brain death declaration process. Uh, even if the institutional protocol or the national guidelines say otherwise. And this does pose the question whether neurological consultation should be obtained for all brain death examinations. Um, I mean, I know that in some institutions it is already uh, that way, but uh, uh, for example, at Cleveland Clinic, it wasn't really uh, a, a mandated a policy that neurology should be involved, but it was clearly that, you know, the majority of patients were actually evaluated by neurologists. And uh, this was an interesting study that was published in Neurocortical Care in 2014. Uh, this was a simulation-based survey where, uh, uh, you know, the research team um, did this simulation for uh, physicians who frequently diagnose brain death, including anesthesia, cortical care, neuro, uh, uh, emergency medicine, or surgery, uh, and uh, they did a, they essentially did a simulation. But before that, they did a test, and after that, they did another test. And uh, the pretest scores for the brain death uh, determination, especially with, when it comes to performing the ancillary studies, they were much higher for neurology and uh, neurocritical care. Um, than other specialties, but it wasn't perfect, actually. It was only 55 or 56%. Um, so the one to the left is the attendings, the one to the right are the residents. Uh, this simulation did actually improve these uh, scores. And these are, it's not shown here, but these, the, the physicians did better on the post-simulation um, test scores. Uh, but there was still some discrepancy between neurology-trained and non-neurology-trained clinicians on how, on, uh, actually sticking to the uh, guidelines uh, of uh, brain death determination. The last thing is that the AEG performance decreased over time. And uh, this decrease actually happened despite a good sensitivity, uh, and which means that no clinically brain death patient actually had a falsely preserved uh, uh, physiological uh, activity. And um, we think this, uh, you know, this decrease over time actually reflects a lot of um, concerns regarding the false positives, uh, just because of the potential confounding factors. And again, the AEG has an inherent inability to assess brainstem function. So the recent guidance actually does recommend uh, that EEG is, uh, you know, EEG is discouraged from being used uh, alone for brain death determination. And if EEG is used, to, do, to use another um, uh, uh, electrocerebral activity that assesses the brainstem, such as the evoked uh, potentials. All right, so uh, we have a few minutes, um, but I just wanted to um, talk a little bit about future directions and uh, what you know our team is hoping to achieve. 
uh, you know, as we talked about in multiple parts in the presentation, there is a lot of limitations in brain death uh, research. And these limitations arise uh, from, you know, uh, you know, the, the topic itself is very hard to study because uh, it's hard to study prospectively. So the majority of studies are actually retrospective. Uh, the second thing is that the majority of these studies uh, come from single center studies, just like ours, uh, and uh, non-comparative uh, case series. And, uh, you know, this re results in a lot of um, uh, biases in the, in the available literature. So uh, what we're hoping to achieve is actually a research collaboration that gives us the amount of data that is necessary to achieve a high level of evidence for a lot of the things that we do for brain death. And, uh, you know, when I moved to Boston um, from Cleveland, I got in touch with Dr. Greer, who's currently my primary brain death, uh, you know, research mentor. And we came together to put a collaboration that we call the New England Brain Death Research Collaboration. And uh, this collaboration aims to bring academic institutions together to collect data on brain death, um, on brain death uh, research. So what uh, we're doing uh, for now, we're, the sites that are enrolled include BMC, MGH, and Brigham. And uh, we're collecting uh, information on patients who were diagnosed brain dead over the last 10 years. And we're actually obtaining the information about these patients from uh, the New England donor services. So um, as you guys know, you know, uh, in the majority of places, it is, uh, uh, it is required that anyone who is at risk for brain death or is uh, diagnosed brain death has to be... Um, notified to an organ procurement organization, depending on the area that you live in. And that's why we kind of started from New, in New England. We thought that these OPOs, the organ procurement organizations, would be a great source for, uh, uh, for, for, for data on these patients. So the initial phase of our collaboration is going to be retrospective over the last 10 years. Um, and that's what we're going to work on over the next year or two. But we're hoping, hoping once we have more established collaborations to actually do more prospective uh, research on this. And um, I wanted to put this here because although this is called the New England Brain Death Research Collaboration and we're going to start from New England, uh, our goal is actually to reach out to other academic institutions around the country. So um, if you are interested or, uh, you know, someone from neurocritical care or critical care medicine or anyone who's interested in the audience, please feel free to reach out to uh, me or Dr. Greer directly, and we would happy to assist with the IRB approvals and, and uh, what needs to be done.